0: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective, Gary Jenkins. Okay, welcome all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I've got a special guest today, and I thank you guys in Chicago particularly, Ben Ellickson and and Mike Byrne, and, and all you people up there in, in Chicago that I know are regular listeners and really follow the outfit closely, will we'll really be fascinated by this. This I have the FBI agent who was Ken Edo's or Joe Edo's, uh, and you guys know him as Tokyo Joe, maybe's uh, control. And she developed the case on him. She worked with him closely after he came into the witness protection program and turned on the outfit. And she's written a book, A Gun in My Gucci. Uh, her name is Elaine Smith, and and I want y'all to to give a big Chicago welcome to Elaine Smith. Welcome, Elaine. Good to have you here.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Started reading your book the other night. It's like I told you before. Uh, we turned on the recording machines. It's imminently in- readable. Uh, that's a twenty-five dollar word there, but it's very readable, folks. So I, I would I would recommend A Gun in My Gucci especially if you want the, the inside story. And, and she touches on so many things about the outfit. Uh, like, I was just glancing over in the back pages, and I all, all of a sudden see the, the name of Hanhart. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Tokyo Joe was, was really ensconced in, in the Chicago outfit at, at a really high level. Elaine, uh, first of all, tell uh, tell the listeners a little bit about how you got be an FBI agent? Because you were kind of early in uh, female FBI agent territory, because you we had very few female Kansas City police officers in at, in those times. So how did you happen to be an FBI agent?
1: My husband was an FBI agent, had become an FBI agent. And he they started ha- allowing women after Hoover died. Yeah. And he kept telling me, you would really be a good agent you're you' you've you've taught in the inner city. you've um, been through the Martin Luther King riots. you you were tough, and you get along with people. you would and so it was with his encouragement. But only after I realized that I needed to, I was playing tennis, and we got winded, and a friend of mine told me I was in terrible shape. <laughs> and I was so offended. That I started running. I started working out. And it wasn't until I started doing that that I gained the confidence that perhaps maybe I physically could do that job.
0: When you first came on now, you didn't you didn't go right into working organized crime. I know a little bit about how that process works, knowing having known a lot of agents. So they didn't throw you right into the organized crime squad. <laughs> That's more the elite squad. Uh, so what, what did you first start doing with the Bureau?
1: Oh, I, I first started doing, you know, background investigations, then for a while I was doing some, you know, in tellers, when teller would take money, and most of those were confessions. And yeah. growing up in Chicago, uh, I, all I wanted to do was work the mob. It was what I wanted to do. So I studied the supervisors of the organized crime squads and realized that this one um, was sort of taken with women. And so I asked him <laughs> one day if he would go to breakfast with me. And, and he was like, what? He was astonished. A woman had never asked him to go to take, to take him for a meal. And so I took him to breakfast and I said, you know, I want to work organized, organized crime. Do you think that I could come to your squad to do that? And he brought it back to the squad who voted which is pretty ridiculous. That
0: is ridiculous. I I had a squad of organized crime goons, and and we never voted on who came in. Now, they may express their opinion, but nobody voted. But go ahead.
1: Yes, they voted if I was acceptable. (laughs) And apparently I passed the ball. But really what they wanted me to do is they had some very uh, great uh, Title Threes going. And they said they needed people to sit on the Title Threes. And they thought, well, we'll put her back in the Title Three room, and she can sit there, and, and she's going to be quiet for a while. Yeah. There was another woman they brought on at the same time. Uh, she became an SAC in the, in the FBI, even actually an associate director, who was just astonishing. Uh, and both she and I sat on these Title Threes for months and months yeah. and months. And then they finally let us out. She quit to go back to run her Family's business in California. I stayed on, and they gave me the Ken Edel case, oh, which had been yeah. open since 1959, <laughs> and there were like 25 pages in the case file. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Nothing done. Nothing done. <laughs> Nothing done. Yeah. Well, that's uh. Sometimes it takes a woman's
0: hand, and and folks, I want to tell you something. Sitting on a what, what she just called a Title Three. That's that's an agent that sits in front of a. Uh, tape recorder and is listening and listening and listening and then somebody gets on the phone and you have to know who the voices are. You have to listen to the conversation, which is in either coded or in vernacular, and and figure out what they're talking about and then turn it off if they're not talking about anything that's that would could be construed criminally related, then turn it back on every so often. And you sit there for eight hours. I used to have to loan guys out to these Title Threes once in a while. And and they hated it. I had one scream at me, I'm not going. So people do not like, it sounds kind of romantic, but it's boring.
1: (laughs) Nothing romantic about it.
0: No, and nothing exciting about it at all.
1: They had just raided a porno place. (laughs) And they would throw in the mag porno magazines and you had like a hundred of them. (laughs) <laughs> I learned a lot from those porno magazines.
0: <laughs> never worked on our friend Red Wimette, did you? You never heard that name, Red Wimette. He he was a outfit porn star uh, guy who was actually acting as a, an agent, basically. They didn't even have a case on him. He was an agent for an FBI agent up there and set up a camera and a, a audio and, and talked to several outfit guys in his office out for like two or three years before they surfaced him. Oh, but, uh, so anyhow, uh meet lots of people in in uh, this podcasting business and people everybody wants to write a book, agents, uh crooks. Now now they're out running tours. Frank Calabrese Jr. of the Family Secrets trial, you know, testified against his father and he's running a mob tour of Chicago. <laughs> oh, is he? Yes. Oh. A family secrets tour, he calls it, and then Frank Culotta, who was from Las Vegas and, and was the uh, one of the turncoats on Las Vegas, and testified against Tony Spilatro, who was his boss out there. He's running a mob tour in Las Vegas, <laughs> so and he has a YouTube show. <laughs> I've had him on the show several times, along with Calabrese. So anyhow, moving along with uh, J- Tokyo Joe, I'm not sure what to call him. For, uh, I ought to be consistent here. Uh, uh, sometimes people might take offense at the uh, 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 racial reference of Tokyo Joe. I don't know. But uh, but that was what they called him back then with a variety of other things. And and, and he, he went by his brother's name, Joe, all the time. Is that correct?
1: Yes, which was sort of interesting. Yes, his brother <laughs> was named Joseph at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, really. Well, they were an Americanized Japanese family, which, yeah, absolutely. Which, which leads me to what? What did you learn about his uh, kind of his upbringing? I know when you take on a case like this, you go all the way back to his childhood. What, what did you learn about his upbringing?
1: Well, I learned that his his parents uh, were immigrants from Japan. His father was a born again Christian and was incredibly strict. And actually, I think really kind of twisted because he used to beat the children. And so Joe ran away at the age of 13, supported himself by riding the rails and scrounging food and learned that, well, discovered that he had something of a photographic memory, that he could remember cards. And then he became a card shark. And that was really what he was for his entire life. He supported himself as being a gambler. He could do it quite successfully because he remembered cards. So if you're playing card game with him. He'll remember what cards you get, what cards he gets, and then puts it all together. And so he was quite successful. And after he was interned in World War II, he left Idaho and went to Chicago because he heard that there was great gambling. Well, no one gambles. No one really is a big gambler unless you're under the arm of the mob. And immediately he was taken under their arm and had to pay tribute. As much as 50% of any of his winnings, they also organized these big high-stake games. The mob would always enjoy having him there because they knew they would get 50% of his winnings. And that was where he met Rocky and Felice, uh, Joe Fariola, Vince Solano, because they were all soldiers. They were like guards at these, you know, card games. Up-and-comers. Muscle. Yeah. And he got to know them that way. And for years, thirty eight, thirty nine years he worked with them.
0: You mentioned that Joe Ferriolan and he was the one I read about him. He he said let's we need to organize all these sports betters uh like Capone had the uh, speakeasies and, and the, uh, everybody lined up as part of the organization. Everybody pays something in and put a street tax on all the sports bookies. So they were uh, they were intimately involved uh, all their lives with organiz- organizing and making money off that Chicago gambling. And there's a lot of gambling goes on in Chicago, man.
1: That's, that's right. And nothing goes on unless it's sanctioned by the mob and they pay a tribute. Now, now what happens today? I have no idea. But sports bookies. Yeah. Will- any card games that were organized bingo everything joe always had a great admiration for joe ferriola he thought he was really smart and he was an instigator of organizing things
0: how did he uh move into this uh, uh bolido the uh the numbers game actually how, how did he move into that he seemed like he would that became his niche within the outfit am i right on that
1: uh, yes, for a while. He moved into it because he first was in the numbers or policy for the blacks. And they became, he said, they were crazy. They started becoming with peace donation. They became with the gangs. And he said they started doing dealing drugs and they were uncontrollable. And so that was when he discovered this Puerto Rican lottery. That was the main uh, emphasis of my case. And for a while, the main source of his funds, although we always continued gambling.
0: Uh, there's a lot of money out there in those little fifty cent and dollar bets uh, that a lot of people don't really realize, and, and uh, I think the outfit didn't realize it for a while. What else did they provide? Did he talk much about the uh, police protection he was provided early on with these, uh, with the bolido and organized games?
1: Uh, along with being associated with the outfit, came the police protection. Came the uh, unstated comfort. Of knowing that if you're ever raided, nothing really is going to go anywhere. (laughs) And it's not that the police didn't harass him. They had to have some front of raiding him and seizing things. But nothing that really um, hurt him or nothing that was vigorously prosecuted. So you were kind of untouchable. And that's (laughs) how you continued on and on.
0: Yeah, I read an old newspaper article where IUPA was trying to recruit a Cook County deputy to uh, be one of his guys, and and he promised him. He said, "You know," he said, "I won't make you look bad." He said, "I'll we'll give up a pigeon every now and then, and you know, and and just we just don't want that case to go too far." <laughs> and and the guy was wearing a tape. Believe it or not, this was an early '60s uh, Chicago Cook or Chicago area Cook County vice sergeant or vice officer that actually wore a wire <laughs> on Iupa. Kind shocking. Of a story. It was shocking. Uh, kind of a little known story. It took down a, a lieutenant uh, on the Cook County Police Department out of the deal, or Cook County Sheriff's Office. But uh, shocking for sure. As you got into him, I guess you, you picked up all these records, and you got into this. As you start developing sources, you you really worked on the the Puerto Rican lottery
1: yes that was his main uh gambling activity and um and he was crossing interstate lines he was going he was taking these bets from gary indiana so therefore we got our interstate uh you also can assume it according to the law that it's an interstate gambling operation if they take in more than five thousand dollars a month a week or something And, and so we were able to make it federal and then out of the blue Uh, there gets a call. Someone calls into the office, and so it's routed to a different squad. Clearly, about talking about Canetto, and somehow my boss hears about it and says, "Well, you shouldn't be talking to him about the mob, about Canetto. That case is on my squad. Send that (laughs) informant over." I went out that same night and met that guy. He became. A wonderful informant, and he walked us right into Joe's tabulating room. And every time they picked up stuff from Indiana, whenever they picked it up from the Puerto Ricans in the north side neighborhoods, we knew. We were on it already, and we saw them make the pickups, cross the interstate lines, and then go to a hotel and tabulate it. And uh, after about three months, we raided it, which is really fast for that is an FBI case. Yes, that's really it. You're, you sure this was an FBI case? Right. It should be three years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But then, uh, and then, so we had all that gambling information and records. I sent it back to headquarters. They told us how big the operation was. They looked at the numbers, and it was a, a very large operation, covering about a hundred thousand dollars worth of bets a, a week. Wow, that's a week. big. So just a, they they just yeah. kept a percentage of that,
0: but even a, a percentage, ten uh, percent, is ten thousand dollars a week for the outfit.
1: Yeah. It was a really big business and when we indicted which we had to wait 18 months to get it done because the United States Attorney's Office was kind of dragging their feet. Vince Alano whistled him in and took a walk with him, the infamous walk. And Joe said, you know what? The most I'll get is 18 months. I can do it standing on my head. Uh, And Vince seemed to be very worried about Joe. Of everybody that works for Vince, Joe would have never... Joe never would have talked. He was Japanese. He was also what he called samurai. And they took an oath that he would never snitch on anyone. (laughs) So Joe could have gone and done 18 months, but Vince was um, paranoid and not very confident. He got Jasper Kempi, Z, Kansas City boy, and John Cattuso, who was just coming up in the outfit, to... Invite him to dinner, and when they got in the car, they attempted to shoot him, and they shot three times. Boom, boom. And Joe's saying, as I hear these shots going off inside the car, and I feel this on my head, but nothing's happening. I'm not dying. (laughs) He says, I'm going to pretend that I'm dead. And as he's falling down, he gets a third shot in his head. And he go, falls on the front seat and he pretends that he's in the, the death, the, the last stages of dying. Like he said, I wiggled like a chicken. He'd <laughs> <laughs> seen that on TV. <laughs> I guess. Uh, and you know, a head wound bleeds profusely. So yeah. both of these gumbaz, uh, Kutusu and Kempisi, thought that they are oh, for sure they've done the job. And they get out of the car, slam the door and run away. And Joe, Joe realizes I'll let him run away and he gets out of the car and about half a block away was a pharmacy and he staggers into the pharmacy and then bingo, that was it. That was it. I read your description of that. It's really
0: interesting description because there's been other cases where somebody was uh, was called in uh, Tony Splatter and his brother Michael, where they and there was another one I can't think of it, but where they like left their jewelry. They knew they probably were going to their death, a- and your description in the book was obviously from him. That was a really interesting description. Kind of tell tell us a little bit about you know. Uh, what he was thinking, what what he was feeling when they called him, said, you know, we want you to, we're going to take you out to eat and use your car. And that puts one of them in the back seat and one in the front seat. It's a perfect setup uh, for murder. And he knew it, but he went anyway. Well, tell, tell us about that description.
1: I asked him many times because it was incomprehensible to me. Why would you go to your death? Why would you do this? And I think there's always the outside. He was a gambler. And he says, you know, he he balanced the odds, and there was always an outside chance he could talk his way out of it. But um, he, he was just convinced that there was no other life for him. He had to go face, and he took a shot, took a bath, and put on his best suit, and gave his wife told his wife where his insurance policy was, and. Um, He went and he said he got in his car and it was February and it was cold cold and he said, I sat in that car for like 20 minutes, not knowing if I should start it and go to this meeting. But he finally did, and he drives to the meeting, and he knows he's driving to a hit. He really is convinced of it. He'd never been out to dinner with Vincelano. Vincelano had never invited him out to dinner. This was highly unusual. He knew he was going to his last supper. Then as soon as Cattuso and Campisi got in the car, he knew it because he said John Cattuso's hand was just shaking, just totally shaking. They gave him directions, and they gave him directions to a restaurant that he had no idea. He never knew anybody that went there. You know, it wasn't a mob place. And then they asked him to pull into this parking lot, which was against a railroad track, and it was dark. He just followed the instructions. He just went along. He said they had their chance. They had their chance. And now I'm
0: talking. Well, uh, and one of them was a former, or maybe even current, uh, Cook County deputy sheriff. Is am I not correct on that? Is that
1: yes, yes? But that was sort of an honorary thing. I'm not sure they went to uh, extensive firearms training. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right, I got you. We used to have the, the sheriff's posse. If you're a big donator to the sheriff's campaign of yeah. Jackson County, then you were part of the sheriff's posse and had a uniform and and you even put red lights and, and siren in your car, which is, and, oh, and maybe even they put a radio in for some of the big donators. <laughs> we we had a guy back in the 50s that was one of those and he was running slot machines in, in eastern jackson county and, and he had a big siren right on the uh the hood or the the front fender of his car <laughs> so uh, there's a long held tradition of uh the people who get connected to sheriff's offices that want to be a part of the posse <laughs> interesting so you go on uh you get a call when you're on uh you're on vacation uh you're out in Vail skiing. You you got uh, probably sounds like a lifetime history of liking to go snow skiing in Colorado. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you get a call on vacation and, and learn that that uh, Kenito has been shot, and but he's not dead. So you fly right back to Canada or right back to no, Chicago. Is that correct? I
1: wanted to. No, you didn't. I wanted to. I yeah. said I'm there. I'm taking the first plane in the morning. And my boss said to me, no. We've got this handled. You're going to not take another vacation for a couple of years. So finish your vacation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I said, You've got to, this case is mine. This case, you're not giving this case to anybody else. This case is mine. And he said, Don't worry. He was honorable. He said, Don't worry, Smith, it's yours. Yeah. So then I said, Okay, <laughs> I'll stay on vacation. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, well, good, and, and kind of the, the rest is history when you get back. But, but folks, we're not going to go into all this book. you got to buy this book to, uh, to find out all what she learned as she debriefed and worked with, uh, with Tokyo Joe uh, Ken Ito over the next two or three years. He, he flies around the country, uh, even came to Kansas City to testify about the Chicago outfit because you have to show juries that it's it's an organization and so they've got pictures they can show like the the last supper picture that was so famous where they're all sitting around the table and and Joe Lombardo standing up in the back with his suit on but Ken Ito is a guy that can come in and say, okay, that is, that is Joe Lombardo. That is Joey Ayupa. Lombardo reports to Vince Solano, or Vince Solano reports to Iupa. That's how it works. And and you have to explain that to juries. And so he became a storyteller and, and flew all around. And, and you came to Kansas City with him when when he testified, I understand.
1: Uh, I went with him everywhere okay. that he testified to just make sure Number one, that he wasn't mistreated, that he was honored. I always, uh, I was with him every day. I I had, you know, the marshals would put him in some horrible hotel and then I would always go to the best five-star hotel and then I'd get him over and we'd hang out all day Yeah, uh, in the room by the pool. We'd go to the best restaurants. We'd drive around in a continental that I'd rent. And we wait for him to testify. And we waited in Kansas City for a month to testify. Oh, really?
0: Oh, yeah. really? Yeah.
1: Wow. We continued to debrief him. We continued to de- discuss things. There was always new information, insights of 30-some years that he would be able to share. Yeah. yeah. And Great. I wanted to protect him. I didn't want him to be used and abused. Yeah
0: and and folks you you think that that he's now the government's friend but i can assure you i can tell you my own stories and and other first hand stories about you taking a witness like this to another jurisdiction and that other jurisdiction will treat him like dirt and and those us attorneys will treat him like dirt and and even try to put a case on him and, and and i know a good friend fbi agent of mine went up to minneapolis and and he ended up in a screaming match in front of the judge with the us attorney up there is a guy had done great things and they didn't have anything. They just he was like the biggest thing they had, so they were gonna they were gonna go for it. So that's uh, that's what she means by protecting him. You and that's protecting him from our own, which which happens. It's it's just you know the nature of the business, I guess. But anyhow, well, it's been great, uh, Elaine. I, I really appreciate you coming on here. My pleasure. Day. You're going to do another podcast with, uh, with my friend, uh, uh, if, former FBI agent from uh, Philadelphia jerry uh, uh, williams jerry williams yeah you're going to do her she has a good show i listen to hers all the time uh, she focuses uh more on the agents and, and i try to focus more on the crime stories the the, the kind of the blood and guts uh, uh day-to-day things but uh, uh she has a good show and and uh, you you got that book out there you saw on amazon i'm sure
1: yes oh yes two you, outsiders you, take down the chicago mob and it's amazing what his testimony revealed and how there were numerous eighty-five. He's credited with eighty-five convictions. Wow! I, I it, it's it's amazing. It's it's awesome. I called him the Rosette Stone of the Chicago outfit.
0: Really, we did. I did a show recently with another uh, guy called the Mob Blunders, and this was a mob blunder of all times, trying to t- kill Tokyo Joe. That was. Uh, especially when they didn't get it done, but even just trying to, even trying to kill him was a, was a blunder. It was just because it brings heat down. It brings heat down like crazy on him. Obviously, Vince Solano knew little about history and the samurai culture, uh, Japanese warrior spirit. Obviously, he, he should have looked back to World War II about all those Japanese that wouldn't give up and would commit suicide before they'd ever give up and stayed in those caves till they burned them out. He he knew nothing about history. But that's, uh, you know, that, that, thank God they make mistakes like that. <laughs> yes, 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 And we're just yes. sitting there waiting for them to make a mistake, aren't we, Elaine?
1: Right, always. always, always.
0: <laughs> all right, Elaine, I really appreciate it. Oh, and, and you Chicago fans out there, you might notice that I got my Cubby's hat on today. Elaine, I wore this for you and for all the rest of you Chicago people out there, because yes. I know you'll be interested in this uh this show. All right. Thanks a lot, Elaine. You're
1: welcome. You're welcome. Bye, Gary. Bye.
0: Bye. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of uh, interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savela Spiro War and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, how FBI Wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link the uh I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.